Hello, listeners. Hello. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Mercury is behind us, and this is uh, Delete Your Account. No, it is not. What is it? Armchair Apocrypha. That's right. It's Armchair Apocrypha. <laughs> you this probably should the... delete your account. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Still delete your account. Yes. But this is actually Armchair Apocrypha, uh, the show where um, armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Yep. Uh, how was your week? It was good. Yeah. It was not bad at all. Not bad at all. How was uh, yours? It was pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. Very laid back, very chill. Um, we lost at Trivia on Tuesday. Oh my god, we didn't just lose, we like bombed. It was embarrassing. It was real bad. It was good thing it wasn't one, like what Mary said, it wasn't one of our regular yeah. uh, <laughs> names, so people won't know. <laughs> uh, cheers to if Mandy Patinkin was a trivia team for beating stunts. For the first, um, first, the first team time to beat this year. Them this year, yeah. Yeah. Um, we are recording a little bit earlier than we usually do because Rachel has a show tonight. Yeah. Our friend Jared is, uh, the Gay Men's Chorus, Chorus is yeah. doing cabaret. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think they performed cabaret songs. They went to it last year. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm trying to remember. Just going to drink and watch <laughs> him sing. <laughs> It'll be good, though. Nice. And then uh, Cameron, who we've had on the show a few times, it yeah. was his birthday last week. So we celebrated last night. I'm still a little hungover. Um, it was a lot. I'm okay, yeah. I've been drinking a lot of water. Yeah. I don't want any beer tonight. I don't want any beer for like six months right now. But yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And those were not great beers that I had last night. They were not good. <laughs> I've the, never, the beers that you got were not They very were good. not good. They had... Um, <laughs> That's why it took me <laughs> an hour and a half to drink each one, which is probably a good thing in a yeah. but... Yeah, I was just slamming down those stouts. Um, <laughs> what was the... It was National Margarita Day, so they it had a was, margarita cider. cider. Yeah. Um, it was sour, and I like sour things. It was really sour. Mm-hmm. And then what was the one that you got, the one that tasted like chemicals? It was real bad. It was... Um, I, just, I can't remember. I blocked out of my head. <laughs> but it, yeah, when Katie said it tasted like... The aftertaste tastes like cleaning chemicals, and yeah. I literally felt I was drinking chemicals. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's not a ringing endorsement for Old Louisville Brewery, but um, I did enjoy my stout. My stout was oh, amazing. Good. Good. It was great. Glad to hear that. And then uh, a homeless guy came up to me when I went out to smoke and was like, I, I only need $7, please. I'm getting on my knees for you, sir. And I was like, Whoa. here's $5. Please leave. Did he? <laughs> yes. Okay. I was like, please stand up. He was like, you serious? I'm like, yes, please stand up. Here's $5. He was like, thank you, Jesus. And I was like... Uh, bye. Bye. <laughs> mm, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Old Louisville, uh, Old Louisville Brewery. Um, I really like the atmosphere. And I like how we weren't the only really one good. playing games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we played code names. Yeah, that was um, fun. Which I am not good at, uh, apparently. No, I think... You do a really good job at it. Cameron touched the assassin. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> okay. That's one do- time. <laughs> I still don't understand the... I, we, I was trying to get oil and marble, and so I said art, art and he touched screen, which I wouldn't consider, like... Art. Art, yeah. but maybe maybe I'm wrong. No, I knew exactly what you were going for, but yeah. that wasn't difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So are you ready? Sure. Let's get into it. 
tell me all about your person, place, or thing. I've got uh, a group of people, and I'm specifically talking about a brother and sister pair. Um, you've probably seen the meme going around about uh, Sophie Scholl. Uh, Sophie Scholl. Maybe. Maybe. Um, Sophie Scholl was uh, part of the White Rose Resistance Group okay. in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. um, it's coming up on the, uh, the anniversary of her death. So a lot of people have been sharing the meme of her. Okay. Somebody's talking about her and her brother Hans. Hans. Hans Scholl. Uh, so Sophie Scholl was the daughter of Magdalena Mueller and a liberal politician and ardent Nazi critic Robert Scholl. Uh, who was the mayor of her hometown of uh, Fortenberg am Kosher. Sounds great. In the free people state of Württemberg. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When Scholl was born, she was the fourth of six children. Inga, Hans, Elizabeth, Sophie, Warner, and Tilda. Tilda. Tilda Scholl. Great name. <laughs> I like Inga a lot. Inga mm -hmm. is a good one. Uh, Sophie was brought up. Uh, Sophie and Hans were both brought up in the Lutheran Church. Um, Sophie entered grade school at the age of seven. Uh, she learned easily and had a pretty carefree childhood. Cool. Um, in 1930, the family moved to Ludwigsburg, and then two years later to Ulm, which uh, which is where her father had a business consulting office. Okay. In 1932, Scholl started attending a secondary school for girls. At the age of 12, she chose to join the Bund Deutscher Model, the League of German Girls. Okay. Uh, <coughs> she wasn't alone. It was a pretty popular club. Uh, most of her classmates were also in it. Uh, she had an initial enthusiasm, but the more that she was with the Bund, uh, the more that she gradu uh, gradually began to develop criticisms of it. Okay. Uh, she was aware of dif dissenting political views of her father, friends, and some teachers. Uh, even her brother Hans, who had once eagerly participated in the Hitler Youth Program, became entirely disillusioned with the Nazi Party. Good. As you do. As one does, hopefully. Hans Scholl, uh, during his time in the Hitler Youth, was chosen to be a flag bearer when his unit attended the Nuremberg Rally in 1936. His sister Inga Scholl later recalled, his joy was great, but when he returned, he could not. We could not believe our eyes. He looked tired and showed signs of great disappointment. We did not expect any explanation from him, but gradually we found out that the image and model of the Hitler Youth, which had imp had been impressed upon him there, was totally different from his own ideal. Um, Hans underwent a remarkable change. This had nothing to do with father's, father's objections, Taylor. He was able to close his ears to those. It was something else. The leader had told him that the songs were that his songs were not allowed. Why should he be forbidden to sing these songs that were so full of beauty? Merely because they had been created by other races? Sophie, who was close to Hans, also became disillusioned with Adolf Hitler. Shortly after Hans returned from Nuremberg, an important BDM leader arrived from Stuttgart to conduct an evening of ideological training for the girls in Ulm. Sophie had a talent for drawing and painting, and for the first time, uh, she came into contact with a few so-called so degenerate artists. An avid reader, she developed an, a growing interest in philosophy and theology. When the, BDL, when the BDM leader asked the girls if they had any preferences for discussion, Sophie suggested they had read poems by Heinrich Heine, uh, one of her favorite writers. The leader was appalled and pointed out that the left-wing anti-war Jewish writer 
had his books burned and banned by the propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels in 1933. Apparently, Sophie replied, whoever doesn't know Heine does not know German literature. Elizabeth Scholl, one of the sisters, has argued that during this period, all the Scholl children gradually became hostile to the government. They were undoubtedly influenced by the views of their parents, uh, but had been disappointed by the reality of living in Nazi Germany. First, we saw that one could no longer read what they wanted to or sing certain songs. Then came the, the racial legislation. Jewish classmates had to leave school. Political attitude had become an essential criterion in her choice of friends. In spring 1940, Sophie graduated uh, from secondary school, where the subject of her thesis essay was, The Hand That Moved the Cradle Moves the World. Shh. That's a good title. Mm -hmm. uh, Scholl did not graduate, uh, having, or Scholl nearly did not graduate, having lost any desire to participate in the classes, which had largely become Nazi indoctrination. Being fond of children, she became a kindergarten teacher at the Froebel Institute in Ulm. She had also chosen this job, uh, hoping that it would be recognized as an alternative, an alternative service to Reichsarbeitsdienst, something like that, National Labor Service. Okay. Uh, National Labor Service was a prerequisite to be admitted in, uh, to be admitted to the university for everybody. Um, however, this was not the case. Uh, in, in spring 1941, she had to begin a six-month stint in the auxiliary, auxiliary war service as a nursery teacher in Blumberg. The military-like regimen of labor service caused her to think very hard about the political situation and to begin practicing passive resistance. After her six months in the National Labor Service, in May 1942, she enrolled at the University of Munich as a, a student of biology and philosophy. Her brother Hans, who was studying medicine there, introduced her to his friends. Although, although this group of friends eventually became uh, known for their political views, they were initially drawn together by a shared love of art, music, literature, philosophy, and theology. Uh, they also enjoyed hiking in the mountains, skiing, and swimming. They often attended concerts, plays, and lectures together. Inga Scholl later recalled the club had its own most impressive style, which had grown up out of the membership itself. The boys recognized one another by their dress, their songs, even their way of talking. For these boys, life was great, a splendid adventure, an expedition into the unknown, beckoning world. On weekends, they went on hikes, and it was their way, even bitter cold, to live in a tent. Seated around the campfire, they would read aloud to each other or sing, accompanying themselves with guitar, banjo, or balalaika. They collected the folk songs of all peoples and wrote words and music for their own ritual chants and popular songs. In Munich, Scholl met a number of artists, writers, and philosophers, particularly Karl Muth and Theodor Haker, who were important contacts for her. The question they pondered the most was how the individual must act under dictatorship. During the summer vacation in 1942, Scholl had to do war service in the metallurgical plant in Ulm. At the, tame, at the same time, her father was serving time in prison for having made a critical remark to an employee about Hitler. Hans Scholl made friends with other medical students who also questioned the morality of the Nazi government. This included Christoph Probst, Alexander Schmorl, Willy Graf, and Eugen Wittenstein. Even Eugen? Eugen. <laughs> Hans' sister Sophie joined him at the University in May 1942. 
Han soon emerged as the group's leader. The role was tacitly bestowed on him by virtue of that quality and his personality that, in any group, made him the focus of attention. Alex Schmorl was usually at his side, his close collaborator. Between them, they arranged for meetings and meeting places. Sometimes they met in Han's room for impromptu talk and discussion. For larger meetings, they gathered at the Eichmeier studio or the villa of Dr. Schmorl, an indulgent father who shared many of his son's views. According to Elizabeth Scholl, the White Rose Group was formed because of the execution of members of the resistance. She said, we learned in spring of 1942 of the arrest and execution of 10 or 12 communists. And my brother said, in the name of civic and Christian courage, something must be done. Sophie knew the risks. Uh, Fritz Hartnagel told, her, uh, told me about a conversation in May 1942. Sophie asked him for a thousand marks, but didn't want to tell him why. He warned her that resistance could cost both her head and her neck. She told him, I'm aware of that. Sophie wanted the money to buy a printing press to publish the anti these anti-Nazi leaflets. Ha ha! Huzzah! <laughs> Later, under Gestapo interrogation, Hans Scholl gave several explanations for the origin of the name, the White Rose, and suggested he may have chosen it was, uh, while he was under the emotional influence of, si of 19th century poem uh, with the same name by German poet Clemens Brentano. It's also speculated that the name might have been taken uh, from either the Cuban poet Jose Marti's verse Cultivo una Rosa Blanca or a German novel Die Weisse Rose, uh, written by B. Traven. Hans Scholl and Alex Schmorl had read, uh, had read both of these, um, and they also wrote that the symbol of the White Rose was in intended to represent purity and innocence in the face of evil. It's been argued um, that Han Scholl's response to the Gestapo was intentionally misleading in order to protect uh, the anti-Nazi bookseller uh, Josef Songen, who had provided the White Rose members with a safe meeting place for the exchange of information and to receive occasional financial contributions. So there's three possible explanations. Okay. Or four Do possible tell. explanations. I just told. I mean, never mind. <laughs> Did tell. Did tell. Um, in June for, uh, 1942, the White Rose Group began producing leaflets. They were typed, single-spaced, on both sides of a sheet of paper, <coughs> duplicated, folded into envelopes with neatly typed names and addresses, and mailed as printed matter to people all over Munich. At least a couple of hundred were handed into the Gestapo. It soon became clear that most of the leaflets were received by academics, civil servants, restaurateurs, and publicans. A small number were scattered around the University of Munich campus. As a result, the authorities immediately suspected that the students that students may have produced may have produced the leaflets. Blah. I need a drink. <laughs> the opening paragraph of the first leaflet said, "Nothing is so unworthy of a civilized nation as allowing itself to be governed without opposition by an irresponsible clique that has yielded to base instinct." It is certain that today every honest German is ashamed of his government. Who among us has, it, has any conception of the dimensions of shame that will befall us and our children when one day the veil has fallen from our eyes in the most horrible of crimes, crimes that infinitely uh, outdistance every human measure reach the light of day? If the German people are already so corrupted and spiritually crushed that they do not raise a hand, frivolously trusting in a questionable faith and lawful order in history, if they surrender man's highest principle, that which raises him above all other God's creatures, his free will. 
They abandon the will to take decisive action and turn the wheel of history and thus subject to it and just and thus subject it to their own rational decision. If they are so devoid of all individuality, have already gone so far along the road toward the turning into a spiritless and cowardless mass, cowardly mass, then yes, they deserve their downfall. Based upon letters between Scholl and her boyfriend Fritz Hardnagel, uh, she had given two volumes of Cardinal John Henry Newman's sermons to Hartnagel when he uh, was deployed to the Eastern Front in May 1942. This discovery by Jacob Nabb shows the importance of religion in Scholl's life. Mm -hmm. um, she was later recognized by the Catholic Herald in the UK. Okay. Um, the, first, uh, the first pamphlet was published without Sophie. Upon reading it, she realized that her brother Hans had helped write it, and so she asked him to join the White Rose Group. Um, according to historian of the Resistance, Joachim Fest, this was a new development in the struggle against Adolf Hitler. A small group of Munich students were the only protesters who managed to break out of the vicious circle of tactical considerations and other inhibitions. They spoke out vehemently, not only against the regime, but also against the moral indolence and numbness of the German people. Um, Peter Hoffman, the author of the history of the German resistance, claimed that they must have been aware that they could do. Uh, they must have been aware that they could do any significant damage to the regime, but they were prepared to sacrifice themselves in order to register their disapproval of the Nazi government. The second leaflet was published on the third week of June 1942, dealt with the treatment of Jews in Nazi Germany and in Eastern Europe. Since the conquest of Poland, 300,000 Jews have been murdered in this country in the most bestial way. Here we see the most frightful crime against humanity, uh, against human dignity, a crime that is unparalleled in the whole of history. For Jews, too, are human beings, no matter what position we take with respect to the Jewish question, and a crime of this dimension has been perpetrated against human beings. Someone may say that the Jews deserve their fate. This assertion would be a monstrous impertinence. Uh, but let us assume that someone said this. What position has he then taken toward the fact that the entire Polish aristocratic youth is being annihilated? May God grant that this program has not fully achieved, uh, achieved its aim yet. All male offspring of the houses of nobility between the ages of 15 and 20 were transported to concentration camps in Germany and sentenced to forced labor, and all girls of this age were sent to Norway into the bordellos of the SS. Ugh. The third leaflet claimed that the goal of the White Rose was to bring down the Nazi government. Yes! Go big or go home. Yeah, bring it down. <laughs> it suggested the strategy of passive resistance that was being used by students fighting against racial discrimination in the United States. We want to try to show them that everyone is in a position to contribute to the overthrow of the system, can be done only by the cooperation of many convinced, energetic people, people who are agreed as to the means they must use. We have, we have no great number of choices as to the means. The only one available is passive resistance. The meaning and goal of passive resistance is to topple National Socialism, and in this struggle we must not recoil from our course any action, whatever its nature. A victory of fascist Germany in this war would have immeasurable, frightful con consequences. The first concern of every German is not the military victory over Bolshevism, but the defeat of National Socialism. The fourth leaflet was published in July 1942. It included details of How a many large... leaflets are there? Uh, there are five, um, and then there is a sixth leaflet, which is published posthumously. 
Oh, spoiler alert! Uh, Go so ahead. Sorry, four. The fourth leaflet was published in July 1942 and included details of a large number of German soldiers killed during Operation Barbos uh, Barbarossa. Uh, neither Hitler, Hitler nor Goebbels can have counted the dead. In Russia, thousands are lost daily. It is the time of harvest, and the reaper cuts into the ripe grain with wide strokes. Morning takes up her abode in the country cottages, and there is no one to dry the tears of the mothers. Yet Hitler feeds with lies those people whose most precious belongings he has stolen and whom he has driven to meaningless death. Um, they ended the leaflet with the words, We will not be silent. We are your bad conscience. The white rose will not leave you in peace. In July for, uh, 1942, Hans Scholl and his student friends, Christoph Probst, Alexander Schmorl, and Willy Graf, were sent to the Eastern Front as medics. During their time in Poland and the Soviet Union, they witnessed many examples of atrocities being committed by the German army, yep. which made them even more hostile to the government. Yep. They were also upset by having to treat so many wounded and dying shoulders. It became clear that Germany was fighting a war it could not win. December 1942, Hans Scholl went to visit Kurt Huber and asked his advice on the text of a new leaflet. He had uh, previously rejected the idea of leaflets because he thought they would have no uh, appreciable effect on the public and the danger producing them outweighed any effect they might have. However, he had changed his mind and agreed to help Scholl write the leaflet. Huber later commented that in a state where the free expression of the public op opinion is throttled, a dissident must necessarily turn to illegal methods. The first draft of the fifth le leaflet was written by Sophie and Hans Scholl and Alexander Schmorl. Kurt Huber then uh, revised the material. The three men have long discussions about the content of the leaflet. Huber thought that the young men were leaning too much to the left, and he described the White Rose group as a communist ring. However, it was eventually agreed that it would be published. For the first time, the name The White Rose did not appear on the leaflet. The authors now presented them as the resistance movement in Germany. This leaflet, entitled A Call to Germans, included the following passage. Germans, do you and your children want to suffer the same fate that befell the Jews? Do you want to be judged by the same standard as your traducers? Are we uh, to be forever the nation which is hated and rejected by all mankind? No. Dissociate yourselves from National Socialist gangsterism. Prove by your deeds that you think otherwise. A new war of liberation is about to begin. The authorities took the fifth leaflet uh, the more, more seriously than the others. One of the Gestapo's most experienced agents, Robert Moore, was ordered to carry out a full investigation into gr uh, the group called the Resistance Movement in Germany. He was told the leaflets were creating the greatest disturbance at the highest levels of the party and the state. Moore was especially concerned by the leaflets simultaneously appearing in widely separated cities including Stuttgart, Vienna, Ulm, Frankfurt, Linz, Salzburg, and Augsburg. This suggests an organization of considerable size was at work, one with capable leadership and considerable resources. The White Rose group believed that there was a direct connection between their leaflets and student unrest at their school. They decided, therefore, to print another 1,300 of the fifth leaflet and to distribute them around the university. On 18th February 1943, Sophie and Hans Scholl arrived at the University of Munich with the suitcase packed with leaflets. It's supposed to really storm tonight. Oh. 
According to Ingersoll, they arrived at the university and since the lecture room were to op uh, since the lecture rooms were to open in a few minutes, they quickly decided to deposit the leaflets in the corridors. Then they disposed of the remainder by letting the sheet fall from the top level of the staircase down to the entrance hall. Relieved, they were about to go, but a pair of eyes had spotted them. It was as if these eyes, they belonged to the building superintendent, had been detached from the being of their ownership and turned into an automatic spyglass of the dictatorship. The doors of the building were immediately locked, and the fate of the brother and sister were sealed. Jacob Schmidt, a member of the Nazi party, saw them at the University of Munich throwing leaflets from a window of the third floor into the courtyard below. He immediately told the Gestapo, and they were both arrested. They were searched, and the police found a handwritten draft for a sixth leaflet. This uh, they matched to a letter in Scholl's flat uh, that had been signed by Christoph Probst. Following interrogation, they were all charged with treason. Sophie, Hans, <coughs> and Christoph were not allowed to select a defense lawyer. Because, uh, yeah, duh. Because yeah, fascists. Uh, Inga Scholl claimed that the lawyer was assigned by the authorities was little more than a helpless puppet. Uh, yeah. puppet. Sophie told him, if my brother is sentenced to die, you mustn't let them give me a lighter sentence, for I am exactly as guilty as he. Uh, Sophie was interrogated all night long. She told her cellmate, Elsa Gable, uh, that she denied her complicity for a long time. But when she was told that the Gestapo had found evidence in her brother's room that, she, uh, that proved she was guilty of drafting the leaflet, um, then the two of you knew that everything was lost. We will take the blame for everything so that no other person is put in danger. Sophie made a confession about her own activities, but refused to give any information about the rest of the White Rose group. Good. Sophie Scholl, Hans Scholl, and Christoph Probst were all found guilty. Judge Fraser told the court, the accused, the accused have, by means of leaflets in a time of war, called for the sabotage of the war effort and armaments and for the overthrow of the National Socialist way of life for our people. They have propagated defeatist ideas and have most vulgarly defamed the Fuhrer, thereby giving aid to the enemy of the Reich and weakening the armed security of the nation. On this account, they are to be punished by death. Their honor and rights as citizens are forfeited for all time. They were all beheaded by guillotine in Stedelheim prison, only a few hours after they were found guilty. A prison guard later reported, they bore themselves with marvelous bravery. The whole prison was impressed by them. That is why we risk bringing the three of them together once more, at the last moment before the execution. Uh, if our actions had become known, the consequences for us would have been serious. We wanted to let them have a cigarette together before the end. Wow. It was just a few minutes that they had, but I believe that it meant a great deal to them. I want to see this movie. <laughs> there are movies about this. Oh, good. Um, Reportedly, Sophie's last words were, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give, him, give himself up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day, and I have to go, but what does my death matter? If through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action. Han Scholl's last words were reportedly, long live freedom. Short and sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Following their deaths, a copy of the draft of the sixth White Rose leaflet was smuggled out of Germany through Scandinavia to the UK by German jurist Helmuth James Graf von Moltke, okay. which is a hell of a name. Yeah, it is. Uh, this leaflet was used by the Allied forces. In mid-1943, in mid they dropped over Germany millions of propaganda copies of the tract, now retitled The Manifesto of the Students' March. 
With the fall of the Nazi Germany, uh, the White Rose came to represent opposition to tyranny in the German psyche and was lauded for acting without interest in personal power or self-aggrandizement. The square where the Central Hall of Munich University is located has been renamed Geschwister Scholl Platz after Hans and Sophie Scholl. Uh, the square opposite to it is Professor Huber Platz. Two large fountains in, are in front of the university, one on either side of Ludwigstrasse. Um, the fountain in front of the university is dedicated to Hans and Sophie Scholl. The other across the street is dedicated to Professor Huber. Many schools, streets, and other places across Germany are named in memory of members of the White Rose. I really like that. Good. That's totally something I would talk about. <laughs> I'm surprised that I haven't talked about it before, but I have like read all the materials before, mm -hmm. so I was reading through them and I was like, wait, did I do this? And I had to no, go. No, you most certainly haven't. I wouldn't remember. <laughs> that. That's, that's a fantastic story. Yeah. God. People are so brave. Yes. So what do you have for us? Um, I have something a little on the lighter side. Okay. And we just want to talk, because we're, we're ending out Black History Month, at least on our end. Yeah. So I want to talk about a badass um, African-American lady oh, yeah. who I came across today. Um, and her name is Sadie Alexander. Okay. Have you ever heard of her? Uh, not that I recall. It's all right. It probably wouldn't have. But she is most remembered as the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in economics. Okay. So she's real stupid. <laughs> and is the first woman to receive a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Did she also invent some things? No. I may be thinking of she somebody else. Not. Okay. But I'll tell you a little bit about her life because it's nice to remember and honor her. Please do, yeah. Breaking down walls. Um, so she was born two decades before American women even won the right to vote. Um, this is what a quote. I got most of this from an article that I really enjoyed. Oh, yeah? I think it was like her something, something. I, I know it. I'm so sorry. I need to figure it out. Um, <clears throat> her full name was Sadie Tanner Mosley Alexander. Okay. She overcame obstacles as a female and also as an African American in the elite profession of law. In 1927, she became the first Black woman to gain admission to the Pennsylvania Bar, beginning in a long career, a long career advocating for civil and human rights. Nice. So now I'll get a little more into it. So, um, Sadie was born into a, um, a pretty distinguished family on January 2nd, 1898 mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her grandmother was Bishop Benjamin Tucker Tanner. Okay. Did I say grandmother? I meant grandfather. Oh, wait. Her grandfather. Her grandfather uh, was yes, Bishop. Yes, was Bishop, editor of the Christian Recorder and the AME Church Review. Her uncle was surgeon Dr. Nathaniel F. Mosel, founder of the Frederick Douglass Hospital, her aunt, Dr. Hallie Tanner Johnson, founded the Tuskegee Institute Nurses School and Hospital. Okay. Other uncles were also a painter. And then another one was Lewis Baxter Moore, the dean of Howard University. So nice. this is a family that, like... Well-connected, yeah. Yes. Um, her father was Aaron Mossel II, and he was the first African-American graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Law School and practiced um, as a lawyer in Philadelphia. Um, but... For some reason, in 1899, when Sadie was just one year old, he abandoned his family and moved to Wales, so fuck him. Well, that's one way to do it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, it said that her mother suffered from depression, so the family often traveled to D.C., where relatives cared for her and her sister. Okay. 
Although she earned a scholarship to Howard University, Sadie was directed by her mother to attend the University of Pennsylvania instead of entering, um, instead entering in the fall of 1950. Sorry, okay. 1915. 1915. Yes. Not 1950. No, it's my little nose. I'm being <laughs> a, a bitch today. Um, there, of course, she struggled with discrimination from students and professors, and I wouldn't tell me any like explicit stories you can't really find it all the articles just said that because i'm pretty sure she didn't talk about it and wouldn't want to talk about it like later in life um that's the conclusion i came to because i was kind of wanted more details on it but let's be honest of course she just she faced discrimination everywhere she went right right so and this is like when like even just white women hardly went to college um or they went to like an all-female school or something like that you know in 1918, she graduated with honors with a BS degree in education, but the time was denied election into Phi Beta Kappa sorority of some kind. I don't know sororities. I don't know sororities. <laughs> Do you not know sororities or fraternities? Um, she continued her studies at the University of Pennsylvania, earning an MA and then a PhD in economics, becoming the first black woman in the United States to earn that degree. Yeah. Uh, I can't. I've taken like a couple economics classes. <laughs> I can't imagine taking all my classes in economics. Yeah. It's so much. Um, unable to find work, shockingly, as an African American woman in Pennsylvania, she was hired by the black owned North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company okay. in 1921 and stayed there for two years um, when she returned to Philadelphia to marry her college sweetheart, Raymond Alexander, an attorney. They ended up having two daughters together, Mary and Ray, R-A-E, which I think is really cute. Nice. Apparently that was supposed to be my name, <laughs> and it never caught on, Aww. which is fine. Um, Your parents didn't predict uh, the third Star Wars trilogy? <laughs> yeah, they did not. Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> you're like, I am the female protagonist. <laughs> um, so before entering law school... Um, she, Sadie served as the first national president of the black women's sorority Delta Sigma Theta from 1919 to 1923. And in 1924, she became the first black woman enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. She graduated with honors mm-hmm. in 1927, and uh, she was the first black woman now to gain admission into the Pennsylvania bar. Go her. Yeah. Sadie was... Um, the first African-American period to hold both a Ph.D. and a J.D. degree. Wow. Because that's a lot of fucking effort. That's a lot of work, yeah. <laughs> um, she joined her husband's law firm, making them one of the earliest husband-wife legal teams in the country, which I think is so cute. <laughs> <laughs> she began working on cases in the orphan's court and later advocated against racial discrimination, segregation, and, and employment inequality. Mm-hmm. So from 1928 to 1930, and again from 1934 to 1938, um, she was assistant city solicitor for the city of Philadelphia and formed a legal aid bureau to assist African Americans who cannot afford lawyers. Nice. Which I think is cool. She also served as secretary for the National Urban League from 1930 to 1957 for 27 years, and she was actually appointed by President Harry Truman to serve on his Committee on Human Rights in 1947. Nice. Um, evidence in the archives suggests that her focus was in um, 
in the direction of like human rights for over a decade. In 1963, she gave a speech to the annual conference of Commission on Human Rights, and she returned to the topic of economic justice and advocating for universal employment. So I'll get a little bit into like kind of like her ideas, but not too much. So Sadie's. Sadie's works and views are recorded in speeches kept at the University of Pennsylvania and like their little archives. Among her earliest works are from, are from the 1920s and discuss black workers in the U.S. economy. In 1930, she published an article, Negro Women in Our Economic Life, mm -hmm. which was published um, in an Urban League Opportunity magazine advocating black women's employment, particularly in industrial jobs where they were not hired. Yeah. Um, Alexander generally supported uh, that's not that during World War II uh, Sadie saw similarities in a rise in racial violence and discrimination in the U.S. as paralleling <laughs> the treatment of Jews in Germany gee yeah near the end of the war she supported in integrating labor unions to increase their bargaining power once the war economy slowed and industrial employment moved toward pre-war levels. Um, her interest in labor economics issues extended to advocating of government regulation to smooth fluctuations in business cycle, modifications of tariffs, regulation of public utilities, and regulation of securities and securities markets. That is the layman's terms for us people. <laughs> On some Mercury, terms. stop. Um, and, like, when I was researching here, there was never really a place that would go too into depth about her personal life, because that's not what she was about. Also, yeah. it was the 1910s, 20s, yeah. 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, You're saying she didn't have There Facebook? was no Facebook back then, yeah. apparently. Apparently, that's kind of a new thing. Did you know that? <laughs> I think I had We could idea. see what was on her mind as yeah. she was having coffee at 8 a.m. in the morning or something, and she didn't post it. She wasn't a poster. She wasn't a poster. She was not extremely online. No. Um delete your account <laughs> yes <laughs> in 1970 sadie alexander finally was elected into phi beta kappa so uh -huh. i think it's like a yeah like a business story type thing or maybe lawyer or something i couldn't quite check figure that one out she practiced law until she retired in 1982 1982 so sadie died from complications of Alzheimer's, which I think is one of the worst ways to go. Yeah. In Philadelphia in 19... Jesus. In 1989, at the age of 91. So she lived a long life. A long, prosperous life. <laughs> um, and I think like, I just... Bored now, I leaving. just wanted to talk about her, and I'll just end it on this. This is one of her, like, her most well-known... Her most well-known quote. Mm-hmm. I knew well that the only way I could get that door open was to knock it down because I knocked all of them down. Nice. So I was like, yeah, she did. So I thought that was pretty cool. That was good. It's short and sweet, short but I enjoyed sweet. it. Uh, Mercury's just being rude. Uh, yeah. Getting up in our business. <laughs> rude. Ah, uh, that was good. Are you okay? Mercury does not agree. Mercury's a judger. Um... I think that's all for this week. Yeah. You've got to get to your show. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to get out of here. Uh, as always, you can find us online at uh, uh, .wordpress com. Mm -hmm. We're on Facebook at absentactivismarts. We're on Twitter at absentactart. But we've never used it. Um, 
Which, wait a month and a half, <laughs> or a month and a week, and we will. God, I've got yeah. some, I have a phone, a reminder, what day of the week is April 1st? Uh, we'll do something in April, um, for Twitter. Uh, I am on Instagram at awmrights, um, if you want to see pictures of Mercury, he's really cute. Mm -hmm. Um, I am on the Fediverse, I am on, uh, Mastodon at awmrights, and I am also at, um, Keep going. Keep Diaspora going. at AWM Rights. Um, so if you want to check me out there, uh, also while you're on the website, we've got music from Josh Paul Brooks and Chet Osman. Uh, we've got artwork from Katie White. She's open for commissions. Um, we've got my books. Please buy them. There's two <laughs> of them. Uh, we've got short short stories. Uh, I do a new one for Halloween every year. So. Uh, we've got yeah. a couple uh, scary stories in there. Um, I think that is everything. Oh, Patreon. Uh, oh, yeah. If you feel like giving us money so that we can buy new um, equipment, new equipment um, hire writers, hire artists, find people around Louisville who can uh, uh, benefit, uh, please become a patron at Patreon. Um, it's Absinthe Activism Arts. Um, that's all. I love it. All right, we're gonna get out of here. Uh, have a great, uh, have a great week, and we love you. Mm -hmm. Until next time.